turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. It's 4 o'clock, and you're listening to AM630, The Word, and that means you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and what we try to do every weekday here on AM630, The Word, is to take your phone calls and answer Bible questions, life questions, um, difficult situations according to the Word. What does God's Word say? about where you are today. All you have to do to find out is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send the questions that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, there'll be a call now banner across the top. Just hit that. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for the main number. It's 340 85. Well, it's Tuesday. We don't have a bunch going on, so I can get right to some questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from John. Uh, He said, Pastor Ron, you've said many times that the Old Testament paints a picture of what we go through today as Christians in a spiritual sense. However, outside of our Christian faith, do you think that what happened in the Old Testament can still happen to nations today? Since today there are no Christian nations per se where God directly reigns or chooses its leaders directly like he did with Israel. Does God judge today's nations, the U.S. included, in a similar manner as he did with nations and empires in the Old Testament? John, a couple of interesting things that that are are, um, uh, brought up by your question. Israel, remember, was the only nation on earth that God revealed himself to. At that time, they were unique. They were a complete theocracy. They were to be governed only by God. It wasn't even going to be necessary for Israel to have kings like the other nations had they only been content with being governed by God. So that's never going to happen again. God's not going to call nations again like he called Israel. Now, that upsets some people, John, when I say that, because they know this is America and this is God's, we're God's people and, and this was a Christian nation. None of those statements are true. Only Israel is unique throughout the history of the world. By the way, that's one of the reasons that they have been uh, so abandoned by the rest of the world, attacked by the rest of the world? Why they've been the object of Satan's wrath from the beginning? Israel has without question been the most persecuted nation in the history of the world, and it continues to this very day. Um, It just seems like if God has a plan for you, the enemy hates you. And that's what's going to happen. So, no, we're not going to be judged in the same way 
Um, I, I think, John, the way I normally say it is that whatever happens to Israel in the physical realm happens to us as New Testament Christians in the spiritual realm, but not as a nation, but as individuals. Now, I want to be clear, and I mentioned this. I think this question is in response to uh, a question we had yesterday in my answer. Um, every nation, no matter how powerful, no matter how long they were in control of the world, whether it was Egypt or Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome, they all sort of send themselves out of existence. Make no mistake, when a nation turns on God, there's going to be judgment. We who are given the kind of light that we have uh, in this world, uh, much is required of us. And so while, again, God's not dealing with the United States of America, what will happen is he'll simply remove his blessing. Now, I've made this point several times on this program over the years. But one of the things that I'm personally convinced of is that the reason the United States was so blessed by God and became so powerful and so wealthy was because it was God's plan for the United States to be Israel's protector. And the United States, as long as they fulfilled that rule, we were continually being blessed by the Lord. Not as a nation, but remember the people in the nation. Um, when we cease fulfilling that role, then the hand of God is going to be removed. When we continually chase God out of our government, we chase him out of our schools, when we start killing uh, 65 million babies, when we legislate and approve and affirm of abhorrent behavior, and call it normal. The question yesterday was, do we live in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good? Well, when we find ourselves in that position, make no mistake, John, the hand of God is moved and judgment is going to come. But it's not a judgment. God's not going to call another nation to to uh, destroy us the way he called Babylon and earlier than that Assyria uh, to, to destroy Israel. Um, we're simply going to on our own, walk away. You know, John, one of the things that I think is is abundantly true is that we live in a time where God has given us over to ourselves. Our hearts have become hard, and God's simply given us over. That's the kind of judgment that I'm talking about. There will never again be a nation that is a uh, theocracy. I mean, there are uh, Muslim countries that are governed by religious figures, um, but we know he, th- their God is not the real God. Um, so, so it's not like God says, in order for the United States to be blessed, we have to have a theocracy. We've got to be governed by God. That's not God's plan. But it is God's plan for us to be grateful for the abundance we have, to be grateful for the blessings in our lives. And when we're not, we turn from him then we're going to destroy ourselves. So God will deal with people. Now, at the end, the very end, there will be a judgment of nations. But until that time, and that, by the way, the judgment is going to be based on uh, how Israel was treated. Uh, But that doesn't have anything to do with the time and the place that we are. So, John, I hope that makes sense to you. Now, here's a question that uh, is a little bit long. It's an anonymous email uh, to us. um, And it deals with another question that I had yesterday. Uh, Pastor On, after your request to pray for actor Chris Pratt yesterday, a new article came out where the actress accusing Chris stood her ground about how she felt about the actor attending a church that was supposedly anti-LGBTQ. Uh, She said, if you're a famous actor and you belong to an organization that hates a certain group of people, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. Uh, Back to the questioner. Being anti-LGBTQ is wrong. Uh, There aren't 
two sides. Now, that's that's still her quote. Uh, and then the, the commentary starts. It's sad that she does not believe her own words. She's a famous actress, part of a certain group that hates Christians and their values. A true born-again believer does not hate. Also, there are always two sides to every point of view. It seems very narrow to think otherwise. Uh, she continues, this is the actress, if LGBTQ plus people are expressing their pain, their trauma, their experiences, maybe just try to listen, open your heart, stop being defensive and have compassion. What pain? The pain of the decision to live their lives contrary to what God naturally gave us. We Christians do listen and we say in love, it's wrong. Listening does not mean affirmation. Our hearts are open. That's why we care and say so. Uh, Not agreeing with your point of view does not make us defensive. On an aside, as Christians, we should not be defensive. Jesus defends us. Uh, We do what he has asked us to do. Okay, I don't need to read any more on this, but let me just say this. Um, Anonymous, it's unreasonable to expect that people who hate God are going to be considerate of us or patient with us or even polite to us. Uh, They will never understand our point of view. You've heard me say on this radio program a thousand times that, that we have to love people enough to tell them the truth because, as you point out later in the letter, the, the, the consequence of, of living a lifestyle that, that God condemns is eternity in eternal torment. Think about that. We're talking the difference between heaven and hell. And so our view of love is a, is a view that's formed by the Bible. Their view of love is a view of love that's formed by the world. And the world simply says, well, just accept and approve and affirm what people want to do. Don't judge them. And and that's not love. We know that. So they're not going to agree with us. They're not going to come to our side apart from being saved. And that's going to require a move of God's spirit in their life. But make no mistake, Anonymous. Um... For our brothers and sisters who are in Hollywood or who are in the music industry, um, to take a position, a public stand as a Christian is going to cost them a lot and, and they need to be in our prayers continually. So Chris Pratt, God bless you and uh, I hope a whole bunch of Christians are praying for you, but, but hang in there and stand firm. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let me go to Mark's question. Oh, this is just a statement. Uh, it is intolerant, narrow-minded to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I know you believe it, but what makes it true? Mark, if you really wanted to know what makes it true, you probably would have phrased your question a little differently. To call me intolerant and narrow-minded to believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. What the majority of people in our own nation believed for nearly 300 years until relatively recent. Uh, That's not being intolerant or narrow-minded. I'm so tolerant of people, sometimes too much so. Um... I, my heart is so open, my mind is open, but you see, my heart has been transformed, my mind has been transformed by the Word of God, the Bible. And Jesus, if he is not the only way to heaven, well, then he's not God. Here's what makes it true. And I say this every time I preach a message, it doesn't matter where I am. When I'm asking people if they want to receive Jesus Christ at the end of the, the, the Bible studies, it's always this. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. He said there was no way to the Father except through him. They murdered him. They put him in a tomb. And he's alive. He didn't stay dead. That's, Mark, what makes it true. And you see, you've got to be 
open enough and honest enough. You, you talk about me being intolerant and narrow-minded. I'm asking you to look at the facts. Jesus is a historical figure. There's no doubt that Jesus lived. Even secular history records the many wonderful things Jesus has done. But just common sense tells you this is the man, the one man, who's changed the history of the world like no other man has ever happened. He, he, he lived and ministered in a, probably a 60-mile area. How did a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a confined space with no social media, no modern transportation, how did he impact the world to the degree that he has? The answer is he was God. And because he's God, then he's qualified to make the statement that I'm the only way to the Father in heaven. Now, if you choose not to believe it, Mark, you're doing that, denying the clear evidence of his life, his death, and his resurrection. You're free to do that. You have the free will given by God to make that choice. But, but not making that choice means you're going to spend eternity in hell. Not because I'm better than you or you're not as good as, as, as those of us who are born-again Christians. But simply because there's only one way to have our sins forgiven and that is believing in the one who died after having lived a perfect sinless life. So Mark, check it out. Challenge yourself to be intellectually honest enough to look at the Life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you'll at least do that honestly, whatever choice you make will be an informed choice. And if you choose to reject Jesus, which you're free to do, as I said, well, then you've chosen to spend eternity separated from God. I'm begging you not to be narrow-minded. 340-9585, 340-9585, 340-9585, here's a question from Donald. He says, Pastor Ron, can I have your opinion of Adrian Rogers and James McDonald? I have to admit, uh, Donald, that when I read this question, I laughed at the, at the choices you made between these two guys because they couldn't be different. Uh, Adrian Rogers is, um, this is my opinion. Uh, I, I've been saved all that long. I've been saved for 28 years. Um, when I got saved and I heard Adrian Rogers preach, uh, I felt like he was sort of the prince of American preachers. He was pastor of a Bellevue Baptist church in, church in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, um, I, I, I still listen to him whenever I can. I mean, you know, he's not on at really convenient times for my schedule. Um, but um, uh, I, I I love Adrian Rogers. I love the way he teaches. I love um, doctrinally. Um, uh, there's probably very little difference between what he believes and what I believe. Uh, so I can't recommend Adrian Rogers highly enough. When Paul and I are in the car together and I'm listening to Adrian Rogers, I, I usually whine and say something like, why did he get that voice and I get this voice? But what a great, great preacher. Uh, His ministry is still being honored uh, years after his death. He is with Jesus now. Uh, James McDonald is a little different. James McDonald, I think personally, is a gifted Bible teacher. Um, But but James McDonald has got all kinds of issues. His church is falling apart uh, in in the Chicago area. Um, There is even currently now a a hot rumor that he is going to uh, be either be asked to resign or resign on his own. Um, there's all kinds of um, integrity questions about the ministry. Uh, and, and the reason I mention that, Donald, is because uh, it makes me sad because he's so gifted. When I hear somebody who's really a gifted Bible teacher who isn't practicing what they preach in their own lives, it really, really, really makes me sad. Um, I think there's sky's the limit for what the Lord could do uh, with and through James McDonald. But I think if you get to the place where you are advancing your own kingdom instead of God's kingdom, well, there's 
simply God's not going to let anybody touch his glory. And I think James McDonald has gotten to that place where um, God is sort of distancing himself from from James' ministry. It's really, really uh, troubling. Uh, I've met James. Uh, he has spoken at a couple of uh, Calvary Chapel pastors' conferences that I've been to in years past. Um, gifted, um, but sort of lost his direction. So, Donald, I hope uh, we can do that, or I hope that makes sense. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, and we'd love to have them. Here's a question from William. Uh, he says, what is the main purpose of trials? I don't know if there's one main purpose. I guess if I had to boil it down, William, to one main purpose, I'd say it was to, to test our hearts. Uh, Exodus 16 talks about that. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers, there are several references to God testing Israel in the wilderness to find out what was in their hearts. And I think that same thing is is probably true, at least the primary purpose of trials. When we find ourselves in a really difficult situation, the true motive behind our service for God is revealed. Our true, uh, the, the true condition of our heart is revealed. It's easy to worship God. It's easy to talk to him. It's easy to read the Bible when everything's going well. But who we really are is revealed when we're going through something that's really hard. So I think to test our heart, obviously, the prototypical example of this is Abraham um, being asked to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. For three days he walked, and three days he struggled. I'm sure for three days he was angry and heartbroken and all of the emotions that fall in between those two extremes. And yet he passed the test as he was on that three-day journey. At some point in the journey, he realized that, God, you made me a promise that the whole world would be blessed through Isaac. So if I kill him, you have to raise him from the dead. That's why he's in Hebrews chapter 11. And God did it to test Abraham's heart. Now I know that you love me, although God knew it anyway. Now Abraham knew that he loved him. Uh, I said there's other purpose of trials, William, so let me give you the one I think is a, a really close second. I think trials are also designed by God to give us course corrections. I think a lot of times, because God loves us so much, that if if I'm walking the wrong way, he'll send a roadblock, a trial, to make me seek him for another direction. And I've had a whole bunch of those course correction trials in my life. Every one of them has turned out to be extra beneficial. Um, God has spared me from so much. Um, had I kept just going my own way, then um, disaster could have resulted. We're inside of about three minutes now, so let me take a, a, just a couple of minutes to share one example. Um, my church knows this story um, years ago now. Um, I don't know how many years ago, 15 years ago, maybe maybe in that area. Uh, I decided that I needed to have a building. We're in a strip center, and, and um, you know, I, I just felt like, oh, okay, we, we need a building. We, we can't grow until we get a building. And um, I went out and got a building. Uh, there was an Albertsons supermarket right behind us that was closing. They just spent about $3 million uh, the year before uh, upgrading it. And as it was closing, all I could think about was, man, that's perfect. We need it. Uh, and so I had a real estate person. We went out and we made the deal. Um, I got all the way to the end. Paul and I were actually going to sign the papers and pick up the keys. I talked to my elders about it. We talked to the church about it. Everybody was excited. Everybody except Jesus. And I remember sitting in that real estate office. I, I told them, well, I've got to go. Just come and sign and leave. I don't have any time that day. And I walked in. I said, is everything ready? And my real estate agent said, well, yes, but there's just one small change. 
And all I could think about with that change was, well, well, no, there can't be any changes. We had a deal. And the best way I can describe it, William, is it was as though this isn't something I saw or heard, but it was as though Jesus was sitting in a chair. I'm sitting on one side of the desk getting ready to sign the papers. It was like he was sitting in the chair next to me. Sort of like waggling his finger, like, no, this this isn't for me. This is a good idea. Your heart was right. But this is not the right decision. And right then and there, I had a choice to make. Am I gonna, I'm going to be embarrassed and humiliated. I've told everybody we're getting this new building. But Jesus told me, no. And that trial, and there were trials as a result of that decision, but that trial is the reason that we're still operating all these years later. And we've seen God bless in amazing ways. You know, the truth is we're still in that old funky building. It's not funky, tacky is the best word. But what God has been able to do, and we've been able to know for sure that we're right in the middle of His perfect will, well, that's a trial that literally came directly from heaven, William. So I think those are the two main purposes of the trials that we encounter as Christians. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Phones have been quiet or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. If you're listening to The Word to Stand for Life, we'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question that came in. Uh, I am considering leaving my church because they ordained a female pastor. Do you think I should or should I stay? Anonymous, I would leave, and I would leave quickly, nicely. Uh, I wouldn't talk badly about them. Um, I would just express to uh, the leadership at the church that uh, you believe that uh, having a female pastor is a violation of Paul's orders for the church. Uh, when he's talking about orderly worship, And because uh, you believe that this is a church that is now out of the will of God, you're going to leave. Now, be ready to be talked down to. Don't repay evil with evil. Uh, Be ready to be um, marginalized in the sense that, oh, you're just one of those we live in the 21st century now kind of thing. Uh, Just just tell them. uh, Pray for them. Again, don't speak ill of them. Uh, I'm sure the, the the female that they are they have ordained uh, is a wonderful woman. She just can't be a pastor. And anybody who's in a church with a female pastor uh, basically is is um, removing themselves from the full blessing of God. I want to be clear that nobody misunderstands. I'm not saying that men are better pastors. I'm not saying that men are smarter, more spiritual, or better leaders. I'm just saying that the church is not ours. It belongs to Jesus. And he's the only one who's qualified to lay down the rules. So very important. Um, I would not want a church that is willing to settle for less than the best God has for him. Uh, think, think for a moment. If, if uh, a female pastor, and even if there are other pastors who are males... Um, how could that church teach the Word of God when they themselves have walked away from the clear meaning of the Scripture? I realize the time that we live in. I really do. But here's the question. 
Whose side are we on? Whose church is it? It's Jesus's. Here's a, a related question from Hope. Uh, she wants to know, will a woman who's a pastor go to heaven? Um, yeah, a woman. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven who settle for uh, less than God's best, who violate the word of God. Uh, and this is a case where uh, that woman pastor is violating the word of God. But that doesn't mean it's an issue uh, that that threatens her salvation. So it's really, really important hope that we don't make those extreme um, comparisons um, any more than a husband who doesn't love his wife the way Christ loved the church. Uh, he's not going to forfeit heaven. Um, the woman who doesn't submit to her husband's leadership, she's still going to heaven. She's just going to be missing out on the very best that God has for people here. And that means she's also going to be missing out on rewards in heaven. So there's consequences for the bad choices we make. But yes, a a, a born-again believer who's in violation of the Word of God is still going to go to heaven. Here is a question from Valerie. I know that resurrection and reincarnation are two different things, but can a Christian believe in reincarnation? Valerie, a Christian will not believe in reincarnation. Uh, the the two, a resurrection and reincarnation, are completely different ends. They're antithetical to one another. So you can't believe in resurrection of the dead that, that Paul speaks so much about, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's not talking about going through this endless cycle of being reincarnated based on the karma from our old life. That is strictly an Eastern religion concept. Um, because we're infatuated in the West with all things East. There's a whole bunch of people that like to comfort themselves by believing we're always going to get more chances. Um, But if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, reincarnation cannot be true. And a Christian who believes in something that is in contradistinction to the clear teaching of the Word of God uh, I would have to ask them to really look closely into their heart. That's why Paul says to examine themselves daily to see whether or not you're in the faith. We all ought to examine ourselves daily. And I've said this many times on this program. We cannot call ourselves a Christian and disagree with our Christ. So, Valerie, you cannot believe in reincarnation. Here is a question from... Jason, he said, when did people, um, st- oh, here, okay, I'm sorry, I couldn't read it. When did people stop wearing coats and ties to church, and do you think the informal worship style today is acceptable to God? Uh, I don't know the history on that. Um, I, I know that when uh, I went to church, those few times my grandma dragged me, uh, Jason, and I'm talking about in the 50s, uh, late 50s and 60s, um, um, she made me wear shirt and tie, a little clip-on tie. It was pretty tacky, but um, uh, I don't know when that happened. I imagine, now that I'm, I'm only speaking from my own experience, and I wasn't raised in church, but I imagine it pretty much coincided with the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s when a bunch of hippies were getting saved and, and, and putting away their drugs and um, repenting. And, 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 and it was a, a magnificent move of God's spirit. Um, and, you know, you don't see any pictures of hippies who suddenly went out and got haircuts and put on coats and ties. So I imagine in our culture, that was sort of the genesis of it. Um, my producer's saying, yes, it started in earnest during the Jesus movement because he was there. I wish I was there. I'd have been a lot better off, and so too would have Paula. Uh, but but honestly, um, the only thing that's accept, unacceptable to God is um, a, a hard heart. Uh, I really don't think, Jason, uh, I know there are people, and we get people at our church who wear coats and ties from time to time. I don't even wear a coat and tie when I'm preaching. Um, 
and, and you'll get people who do, that they just feel that's better and they want to dress up for Jesus. That's great if that's their heart and their motive is right, and it usually is. On the other hand, I promise you that my motive is right when I get dressed. When Paula gets dressed, she'll ask me, is this okay for church? Um, we just we want to be presentable, but um, we also understand we don't need to be formal. It would be sort of a contradiction in styles for me personally. And um, um, the only thing I know is that God wants our heart to be right. I tell our church all the time, Jason, that that my desire, my request for all of them is to spend more time preparing your heart for church than you do your body. And if you come to church with the right heart, what you're wearing simply doesn't matter at all. And we try to create an environment here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio where people are comfortable any way that they come. And um, uh, I, I, I can't remember the last time we saw anything objectionable in the summertime. You know, we get really close sometimes to people coming in in running shorts and tennis shoes and T-shirts. Uh, you know what? If their heart's right, they don't stink. I don't care. So pretty much... Uh, Jason, um, God is perfectly okay with the informal style of worship that we experience in many of our churches today. 340-9585 today. Dan wants to know, Pastor Ron, are you closer to being a Calvinist or an Arminianist? Uh, Dan, I am right directly in the middle of those two extremes. Both positions uh, are extremes. Um, I I always um, find that Jesus is in the middle of extremes. Uh, So I am neither one or the other. Um, I have been accused by Calvinists of being an Arminianist, and I've been accused of an Arminianist of of being uh, everything from a Calvinist to to uh, uh, um, semi-Pelagian. Um, the truth is in the middle. Uh, for the audience, Calvinists, of course, would, would hold to eternal security, the uh, perseverance of the saints. The Arminianist would uh, be extreme in his or her view of free will. Um, you can be saved, lose your salvation. You can walk away from your salvation. You can give your salvation away. Um, but but both both of those extreme positions are incorrect, uh, and and I think what you'll find, Dan, is that every extreme position is in error. Be right in the middle. That's the beauty of teaching the Bible the way that we do. I can teach Ephesians chapter one verse fourteen, which says that God guarantees my inheritance in heaven. He's given me the Holy Spirit, sort of as a down payment. But I can also teach the Bible in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5 when it talks about people who live willful, willfully sinful lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no tension between those two positions for me. And I think part of the, the problems that we see in churches is that we just have a culture that seems to gravitate toward extremes. And I'll repeat this for the last time. Extremes are not where Jesus is. So I hope that helps. Anonymous says, uh, I suffer from depression sometimes. Is something wrong with me or my faith? Well, Anonymous, I don't really have any question. Let me, or any, any, uh, inform, enough information to, to make a, 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 an educated guess. But, but let me just say generally, uh, sometimes people just get depressed. Sometimes people are prone to depression chemically. Um, um, I know Christians who have struggled with depression their entire lives. The Apostle Paul struggled with depression from time to time. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of of uh, the church history, um, Spurgeon was was prone to long bouts of depression, um, and you know that was at a time uh, before there was uh, meds and things like that. So he just sort of had to deal with it. So um, sometimes people just struggle with discouragement and or depression. 
Now, having said that, I can't tell if something's wrong with you or your faith. I don't know your walk. But I can say that being one who struggles with depression is not an indication that your faith is weak or that there's something wrong. It may be that's between you and the Lord, and you've got to check that out for yourself. But please, uh, everybody in this audience, if you struggle with depression, there's only something wrong with your faith if you don't do anything about it. If you need meds to function for Jesus, then take meds. doesn't mean there's something lacking in your faith. Just the opposite is true. It means that you want to serve God fruitfully and faithfully and you're willing to do what you have to to do it. But always before turning to meds, turn to Jesus. He'll give you direction. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord and he'll give it to him generously. These are things God will give you help on if you ask. And again, if you need medication to function fruitfully, do it. You've got to learn to fight depression. It's, I believe personally, one of the greatest tools the enemy uses against us. And then once he starts to win, he heaps condemnation on us. We ask questions like, is something wrong with me or my faith? So Anonymous, you get close to Jesus. You stay close to Jesus. You fight for your life in the Word. And if after those things, you worship God, you look at things from a heavenly perspective, which the Bible will give you. And if after all those things, you still struggle with depression, then get checked out by a doctor. Always be careful because doctors are going to prescribe meds too quickly, too easily. But if you need meds, get them and don't assume something's wrong with your faith. Remember, when God's going to speak to you, he's going to convict you if something's wrong. But that conviction will draw you closer to Jesus. If you feel condemned, that's not Jesus at all. That's the unholy spirit. That's the devil who's trying to condemn you. So really, really important. Here is a question from Miguel. Miguel, I hope I understand your question correctly. He says, what are your thoughts regarding the state of expositional teaching in the church today? Um, If you'd asked me this question five years ago, Miguel, I would have said, um, the state of expositional teaching in the country today is really, really poor. Um, that was sort of the height of the seeker-sensitive churches and the good news churches and uh, the short story, short sermon um, churches. Um, Today, however, I think expositional teaching is making a comeback. I'm seeing more and more churches rightly dividing the word, going verse by verse, Some of them do it the way we do it here. You know, we start at the beginning of a book and don't stop until we get to the end of the book and then we start over in another book. Um, But 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 even now, many churches who are doing series uh, in the church are 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 doing it expositionally by taking uh, passages of scripture and going verse by verse through them. I had a question earlier about Adrian Rogers. It's one of the things that he does so expertly. Uh, he can have a topical study, but he'll he'll deal with it verse by verse in a particular passage of Scripture so that you are getting the context. You are learning what the author intended to say and what the author means and then the application that's so valuable that comes from expositional teaching. So, Miguel, I actually think that we're doing better today than we were five, ten years ago. Um, at the same time, I also believe that um, the Bible is um, neglected. I, I don't think that's going to change. Um, let me go to sort of a related question because um, I started to kind of answer it. Daryl wanted to know what what is the biggest problem that I see in the church right now? 
Uh, and and Daryl, I'll answer that question by by sort of tagging along with what I said a moment ago. Uh, I think biblical ignorance is the single biggest problem we see in the church. Um, you know, some people say, well, Christians are lukewarm or nobody wants to serve or uh, people just go to church like a, a sort of religious fulfillment uh, of duty. Um, I, th- I think if the Bible were taught verse by verse, chapter by chapter, then all of the other things that I just mentioned would change. So I believe the biggest problem is our lack of commitment to the Word, our lack of commitment to teaching it, preaching it. Uh, We talk about it, but we don't teach it. And as I said a moment ago, I think that's just beginning to change. Um, But at the same time, uh, we do live in a biblically ignorant culture. I just had a conversation um, this week uh, with, or no, it's late last week with somebody who um, goes to uh, one of the biggest churches here in San Antonio, uh, and and they know nothing of Scripture. They don't carry their Bible to church. They don't have to. If they want to refer to a verse, they put it on a screen. But there's no explanation. There's no rightly dividing the word so that people can be transformed by the renewing of their mind. We have to think differently. We have to think new. And I just think, Daryl, that there's a lot of churches that simply aren't doing that. And the people sitting in the pews are just being led to slaughter by an enemy who wants to destroy them. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Here's a tough question from Chuck. He says, do you have any comments on this SBC, that's the, the Southern Baptist Conference, sex abuse article released by the Houston Chronicle this week. Why doesn't the church deal with these issues biblically? Chuck, um, I'm trying to sort through my thoughts on this. Um, so I'll, I'll just take a stab at your question. Um, but this is something that, that I'll be visiting with uh, my leadership uh, probably this this weekend. Uh, unless something else comes up that the Lord wants to share. Uh, the Houston Chronicle has just come out with a, a two-part report on um, um, abuse and victims of abuse uh, in the, the, the Southern Baptist Conference. Uh, and the, the numbers are staggering, absolutely staggering. Um, when you factor in that most abuse, sexual abuse, uh, is unreported, the numbers of incidents that are reported seem to indicate that there's a huge, huge, huge problem. Now, here's what we need to do. We need to live what we preach to others. You know, there's no governing body over churches um, nobody knows what goes on in our church. I don't know what goes on in other people's churches. And sometimes to protect the brand, we don't say anything. And the truth is that we've got to be the ones shouting it from the rooftop so it doesn't have to be the Houston Chronicle that does it. If we can't police our own house, if we can't be depended upon by the, the, the people who call us pastor, if we can't be dependent on to protect them and to deal with that kind of un, any kind of ungodliness, but especially that kind of ungodliness, then we're so misrepresenting and breaking the heart of our Jesus, it's unthinkable. Again, I think the reason the church doesn't deal with them, these are ugly little issues and we'd rather keep them quiet. But in the silence, there's always a victim who's drowning. Uh, my producer just said that the San Antonio Express News also contributed to uh, the story that the Houston Chronicle published. 
Uh, this is just something we've got to be more godly in our approach. I've told our church, Chuck, that if anybody here is accused of sexual abuse, immediately they would step down. All of my pastors know this. My elders know it. All the leaders. They would immediately have to step down until a full investigation had been completed. We want anybody in our church or any church who's a victim of this kind of sickness, this kind of wickedness, we want them to have an advocate. We want to be the advocate. We don't want to put ourselves in a contrarian position to them. And it's our job to let God's light shine. And we can't do that. Our words mean nothing from the pulpit if, in fact, we're not protecting victims. Now, I also have to say, Chuck, that there is a lot of so-called victims who aren't victims at all. We live in a very troubled world, and there are troubled people in the world, and there are certainly people that will make up stories. But the key is, if somebody makes an accusation, the object of that accusation steps ought to step down until the investigation is complete. If that person is found to be guilty, then they need to be put out of the church. They need to be reported. Let me also say, and this is one of the, the, the worst indictments of the whole report. When a claim of sexual abuse is made, it needs to first be turned over to legal authorities. It isn't something that just is to be handled inside the house, to keep things quiet. Maybe I have more to say on this tomorrow, Chuck. Thank you for tuning in today. The phones were quiet. I hope you weren't too bored. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back on AM 630, The Word, 630 AM, tomorrow at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.